When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Lambert. I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. So, I was doing an interview with a gentleman named Sam Gazejack last week. He's also known as RIP underscore MLB on social media. And during our conversation, I made a crack about how since moving to Miami this summer that I had adopted the Marlins as my second team because they would never be a threat to my beloved Red Sox. Now, that comment had two points. One was the obvious, you know, that the Marlins play in the National League and they rarely play the Red Sox. But the other, which is rooted, I think, in a lot of baseball fans when we hear the Marlins, is that the team's usually at the bottom of the standings. They never really pose a threat to any other team. So after the episode, I was thinking about what I said and reevaluating my current understanding of baseball in Florida. And, you know, my elitist Boston side said that baseball here, it's just a fleeting diversion to the folks of this state and that, you know, the success comes unexpectedly for Florida baseball teams and it pulls fans in and just as quickly pulls them out and they abandon their teams after that brief moment of success is gone. And I just have had this enduring idea that nobody cares about baseball here. But was that a fair thought on my part. So I decided to do a deep dive into Florida's baseball history. And, you know, the Marlins have been around for only 15 years, but they've won two World Series championships down that stretch. That's not bad. The Tampa Bay Devil Rays, who are now known as just the Rays, have one of the smallest payrolls in baseball each year, yet they always seem to find a way to field a competitive team of prospects that turn into household names. Every corner of South Florida has a baseball diamond. As I drive around, I notice it. And you can find players playing on these fields from anywhere from age 6 to age 60. There are numerous teams, including my own Red Sox, that call Florida home every spring as they prepare for the upcoming season. So, am I giving my new state enough credit for their baseball roots? So that's why I decided to do an in-depth analysis of baseball's history in Florida. And those roots run quite deep. It extends far beyond spring training and a few World Series championships. In fact, the timeline for Florida's baseball roots came close to any old-time team from the Northeast. In fact, our journey begins all the way back in the late 1800s. For listeners of this show, the name Abner Doubleday should automatically flash the words fraud across your eyeline. 
But for those who need a quick reference, Doubleday was a Civil War officer who is credited as the inventor and evangelist of baseball by Major League Baseball to help cement its legacy as America's game. History has shown this legend to be inherently false, even if Doubleday was a fan of the game who did encourage his soldiers to play wherever he was stationed during the Civil War. Well, one of those places Abner Doubleday did find himself later on in his career was South Florida, at a military base. See, by the turn of the century, baseball diamonds were popular attractions for Floridians to play or spectate. The town of Alva, Florida, has images of a youth team assembled with bats and balls from the year 1900. Gainesville, located in northern Florida, has archived photos of their professional Oak Hill team in 1903. Deland, Florida, has a picture of their club from 1905. The same from Mulberry, Florida, in 1907. Baseball had taken root here not long after the game had expanded outside the Northeast. It was large part thanks to the Civil War. But its growth trajectory was faster than other areas we would consider baseball towns during this time. See, by 1912, Florida had established several baseball leagues. One in particular stood above the others in terms of their professional organization status. This league was called the East Florida State League. The first team established was named the Miami Magicians. The league continued to operate until the outbreak of World War I, when it ceased operations. At the end of the war, the momentum for baseball continued in Florida, though, and they established a new league entitled the Florida East Coast League. The team names reflected the culture of the state. So you had team names including the Miami Beach Flamingos, the Fort Pierce Bombers, the Orlando Nationals, and the West Palm Beach Indians. As this league grew, other professional leagues began to expand into Florida as well. Uh, the American and National League teams began holding exhibition games in Florida, much to the delight of fans. One of the earliest photos of Babe Ruth in a Yankees uniform was taken in 1920, and it showed him taking batting practice before a game against the Cincinnati Reds at Tatum Field in Miami. The Brooklyn Dodgers also came to South Florida to play some games against fellow big league teams. The nationwide segregated Negro Leagues established a full-time team in Miami in 1930, and they named them the Miami Giants. The All-American Girls League, which we talked about in Episode 2, was established during World War II because of the shortage of male players in the MLB. They held their spring training in Opelika, Florida. These expansions helped bring more spectators to games in Florida, but it also helped popularize the support with a new generation of Floridians, those who were growing up seeing the sport played by famous leagues and players all around them. By the end of World War II, baseball had become a favorite sport in Florida, with several minor league teams, a Negro Leagues team, and Major League Baseball exhibition game circuits all finding home in the Sunshine State. The demand for a legitimate baseball stadium grew because of all of these teams, and South Florida was the first to answer the call. There was a man named Jose Manuel Altman who committed to building a state-of-the-art baseball stadium in Miami. And in 1949, a 13,500-seat state-of-the-art baseball stadium was unveiled. It was named Miami Stadium. 
It was dubbed by newspapers across the nation as one of the finest and most beautiful in all of baseball. Now, later on, Miami Stadium was renamed the Bobby Maduro Miami Stadium, and it became a place throughout its history where baseball stars would come to play. During the 1950s, several Major League Baseball teams adopted spring training programs in South Florida, and they used that stadium to feature prominent games. For instance, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Phil Rizzuto, and Pee Wee Reese all kicked their cleats in Miami Stadium. The park became the exclusive spring training home of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then when the Dodgers moved to L.A., the Baltimore Orioles came in, and they kept their minor league team there until 1990. It was torn down in 2001, and there's only a small historical marker there to commemorate its existence. With all of these improvements, you would think that baseball was taking huge steps in Florida. But there was another post-World War II event that really marked itself as an important milestone in Florida's baseball history. This was the creation of the Miami Marlins. We'll be right back after the seventh inning stretch. If you're enjoying the podcast, please, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. You'll get photos, quotes, and short event summaries from baseball's rich past, and you'll get it in your feed on a regular basis. I also want to use social media to have a chance to hear from you about topics that you'd like to see covered. So keep in touch and follow me. You can also support me through Patreon, so if you have $1 or $2 a month, I'd appreciate your support. It goes a long way towards helping me upgrade equipment and pay the bills so I can focus on putting together more episodes. If you have the ability to send me 5 or more dollars a month, I will give you some exclusive perks, such as show notes with photos and research references, extra episodes, and regular live Q&A sessions with me. If you're interested, just go to patreon.com and search for Rounders Podcast. A link is also available in the show notes. For my listeners that sign up by the end of November, I will send you a special web story with visuals of Florida's baseball history. This photo-based story is yours to keep, and you can share it with your friends. So take a moment and sign up today. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. In 1956, there was a bid to create a triple-A team in South Florida. It was approved, and the Miami Marlins were born. They chose the cavernous Orange Bowl Stadium as their home field, and the air was just electric in Miami with anticipation for this team to take the field. The city of Miami pulled out all the stops for the inaugural game. They invited Cab Calloway and Merv Griffin to perform, and on that night, 58,000 people filled the seats to see their new team play. Their main draw was Hall of Famer Satchel Paige. At age 50, he wanted to continue to play professional ball, and he found a home in South Florida. But he didn't get on the team without some controversy. See, the Marlins owner, Bill Veek, who had Paige on previous teams he had operated, had a disagreement with the Marlins manager, Don Osborne. Osborne thought Page was washed up and just a publicity stunt, 
and told the owner that he wouldn't play him in any official games. So Veek told the manager to pick his nine best hitters, and he bet him $10 to any player that could get a clean hit off of Page. Page retired all nine players, and Osborne agreed to make Page a roster player with regulars. In fact, during that 1957 inaugural season, Satchel Page went 10-8 and with 76 strikeouts and a 2.42 ERA. Not bad for a 50-year-old. The fanfare around the Miami Marlins was short-lived, though, as the team suffered from financial problems and waning attendance, much like the modern-day Marlins suffer from. Just four years into their existence, the team relocated to Puerto Rico. Satchel Page signed a contract with the Havana Cuban Stars and continued to play baseball elsewhere. The team was revived again in the 1960s as a single-A squad, but they were eventually renamed the Miami Orioles to match the Baltimore parent team. Still, that Miami Orioles squad was always competitive, and they helped develop players such as Cal Ripken Sr., Jim Palmer, Eddie Murray, and Don Baylor. In the 1980s, the team name was again changed back to the Marlins. Their biggest claim to fame was this squad was responsible for developing Jose Canseco during the 1982 season. Fans just were not filling the seats, though, again, and the team was moved to Pompano Beach and renamed the Pompano Beach Miracle. For the next decade, the Marlins' name became lost to history. Other minor league teams, such as Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach, they continued to keep connections to the big league clubs because they were connected to teams like the Yankees and the Expos. But was professional baseball in Florida doomed to just never materialize? Surprisingly, the spark that kept the national spotlight on baseball in Florida came from its college ranks. The University of Miami hired a guy named Ron Frazier as their baseball coach in 1963. When Frazier stepped in, the school had no money to give him. He didn't get any uniforms, no scholarships, or any front-page recognition. That didn't stop him, though. Through persistence, the Hurricanes began breaking win totals, and they eventually became a top national baseball program. Over the span of 30 years, Frazier led Miami to 21 postseasons, 12 College World Series, and two national championship titles. Since Frazier is retired, he's no longer with the program, the program has continued to grow and add playoff appearances and national titles to their legacy. And it was really their success that proved that a successful program could draw fans and dollars to a baseball team in Florida. So that leads us to 1993. Remember Blockbuster Video? Their CEO, Wayne Huizenga, paid a whopping $95 million expansion fee to Major League Baseball to establish a team in South Florida. He originally wanted to name this new squad the Florida Flamingos, but thankfully, the historic name Marlins won out and the Florida Marlins were born. In 1995, there was an ownership group led by businessman Vince Nemoli, who also won a bid to establish a team in Florida, but up in the Tampa Bay area. In 1998, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays played their inaugural season. 
Now, both of these teams in their early years, they couldn't have gotten off to more different starts. The Marlins won a World Series in their first four years of existence. They kept steady attendance. And, even though they had a thrifty ownership group, experienced success in pretty much every area. The Devil Rays, who were run by that Vince Namoli uh, gentleman who ran that ownership group, he was notoriously thrifty. And he didn't even have email or internet access for the first few seasons in the stadium because he felt they were just fads. He didn't allow fans to bring in food from outside vendors. And this caused a newsworthy incident where there was an elderly fan with diabetes who was prevented from bringing food into the park to regulate her blood sugar. Needless to say, the team didn't win a lot of fans in their early years, and they were given a threadbare payroll, and they finished in the cellar almost every year during the first decade of their existence. Now, both teams have had periods of feast and famine, but there has been no prolonged eras of success for either. Both have been subject to talks about contraction or relocation rumors in the past decade, but professional baseball is now rooted in Florida, and it seems like it's here to stay. So let's zoom out and just take a look at baseball's overall picture currently in terms of importance to baseball. There are two major league teams. There are 17 minor league teams. There's a robust spring training program that's home in Florida. And the state has numerous semi-pro and recreational level leagues. So baseball is clearly a popular sport in this state. And it's an important part of baseball's overall growth and development since the early 1900s. Now, I truly hope that there can be some sustained major league level success for either the Rays or the Marlins. Because I think, even though Florida teams have historically struggled with fan support, can you blame them? It must be so difficult to build a fan base when one of two scenarios constantly pop up. A, your team wins and then management sells off the entire roster, like what happened to the Marlins after both times they won the World Series. Or B, your team develops talent only to trade them or lose them to big money contracts from other clubs, which regularly happens to both the Marlins and the Rays. I mean, how can young fans build an attachment to favorite players or celebrate team pride with a revolving door system like that? But I think Major League success in Florida is on the horizon. The Rays have a stable management group, and they are continually investing in team payroll. The Marlins just hit the reset button again, but they do have a solid ownership group in place. And it's one that says openly that they want to invest in creating a powerhouse franchise. So, overall, Florida, look. You helped build baseball to where it is today, and you deserve to have some of that karma come back to you. So in the meantime, while that's happening, I'll be cheering you on, and I'm sure our other listeners will as well. Well, thanks for tuning in to today's episode, everybody. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>